We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA Magazine. On this episode, we welcome the no-till titan himself, Jesse Frost. Frost owns and operates Rough Draft Farmstead with his wife, Hannah. The farm is an organic no-till market garden based in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. It sells at area farmers markets, and it offers the CSA service. Frost is also the host of the No-Till Market Garden podcast, and for Frost, the show grew out of a sense of service and necessity. He saw that there was a dearth of information on how to make no-till practices work for small-scale vegetable farmers like himself, and he decided to do something about it. In the process, he's built up a thriving community of farmers who are eager to share ideas and best practices. And in addition to his essential podcast, Frost also has an incredible new book out from Chelsea Green Publishing called The Living Soil Handbook, The No-Till Grower's Guide to Ecological Market Gardening. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, we join investigative journalist Carrie Gillum for a monthly segment we call Industrial Ag Watch. On this edition of Industrial Ag Watch, we check in with Carrie Gillum to see what stories are emerging within our industrialized food system. Carrie is the author of the 2017 book Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Whitewash won the coveted Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists, as well as other literary awards. You can also go back and listen to a 2019 podcast we did with Carrie about that groundbreaking book. Her new book is out, and it's called The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. You can find it at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Carrie works as a reporter and director of research for U.S. Right to Know. Her work frequently appears in The Guardian, and she has more than 30 years of experience covering food and agricultural policies and practices. She also serves on the Freedom of Information Task Force for the Society of Environmental Journalists. Here's our latest conversation with Carrie Gillum. Welcome back, Carrie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You've been following a story in Mead, Nebraska for The Guardian, which we talked about on this podcast a few episodes back. For listeners who may have missed that segment, could you give a quick overview of what's going on at an ethanol plant there? So in this little tiny community of Mead, Nebraska, there has been an, an ethanol plant that's been operating there for the last several years called Alt-N. And what, what Alt-N has been doing is a little unusual. Rather than using um, sort of corn and other grain as its feedstock to produce biofuel, uh, Alt-N was taking in treated seeds, um, seeds that are treated with insecticides, fun- fungicides, you know, other sorts of things that farmers use. And a lot of the big companies, Bayer, Syngenta, Corteva, um, you know, these companies that uh, supply treated seeds to farmers, they were dumping essentially their unwanted seeds, leftover seeds here at Alt-N so that Alt-N could use them. And it was a really cheap way for the companies to get rid of the seed, to discard it. Um, and it was great for Alt-N because they didn't have to you know, pay uh, for feedstock for their ethanol plant. 
What the result has been, though, has been really bad for the community because Alt-In ended up with a lot of waste product, uh, distiller's grain, waste cake, uh, wastewater that is just loaded down with these pesticides. And they initially were trying to spread it over farm fields in the area. The regulators shut that down because the levels of dangerous pesticides were so high in this waste product. They couldn't sell it for livestock feed and they couldn't spread it over farm fields. So it was just building up in lagoons and in big piles around the plant. And then there were rainfall events and the lagoons started leaking and all of this pesticide laden waste sort of washed out into the community. And, uh, you know, it's, it's affecting the wildlife in the area. Researchers from the University of Nebraska have determined that there's been large-scale bead die-offs that are tied to this, you know, farm ponds that uh, where farmers once fished and, uh, you know, enjoyed enjoyed their their nice ponds have now been found to be contaminated with really high levels. So, you know, it's, it's quite a mess there in Mead, Nebraska. When we last talked, state regulators and lawmakers were starting to take notice, but where are we now? What measures have been taken to get this under control? Yeah, this has been going on for years and years and community members have been complaining and begging for some action and they haven't really gotten any until very recently. Uh, And that was really only because of media attention, both by The Guardian and then a lot of other news outlets who started reporting on the story. So where we are now is, you know, Alt-In essentially has been shut down. The attorney general in the state has sued them for all sorts of environmental violations. Uh, the, the state is now overseeing a cleanup uh, of the area and riding to the rescue, um, you know, are these companies that supplied all of these pesticide treated seeds. So it's Bayer, uh, it's Cortivas, Ingenta, uh, and then companies AgriLiant and a couple of other companies have come in and said that they want to be allowed to, you know, conduct the cleanup. So they're saying they'll assume all of the costs and uh, just take this up as responsible citizens. So, you know, a lot of the townspeople, you know, don't trust the big companies to do a thorough job. There's sort of um, still some really bad feelings there about it. And, you know, it, it has yet to be seen how it's ultimately going to play out. But right now, the big companies are stepping in and saying that they want to take up the cleanup. And they say that they did not know that Alt-N was not properly handling and disposing of these treated seeds. And the state also passed legislation, correct? Yes, the, the state has, <clears throat> excuse me, the state has passed a law now um, disallowing this type of practice in the future. And other states are looking at trying to, to pass similar laws. Uh, we know that at least one other plant in Kansas uh, had been doing a similar, similar thing, taking in these pesticide-treated seeds. And this is a real problem. You know, these seeds have become pretty popular over uh, the years with farmers. And, you know, the, you know they, they seem to provide quite a great deal of benefit to farmers. Other people, you know, say that the, the benefits are outweighed by the risk to the environment. But the bigger picture is what do you do with these seeds that don't get, you know, planted by farmers that there is not a use for, that the companies need to get rid of? Is there really a safe way when you have this sort of concentration of these large quantities of pesticide-treated seeds, what do you do with them? And so the companies have talked about, well, maybe we incinerate, maybe we burn, but then what is, you know, are you then polluting the air? 
Um, there's talk of, you know, burying them in landfills, but is that safe? So the, the bigger picture now, and, and the industry groups say that they're going to be, be taking up that 30,000 foot view and trying to really figure out what is the best way to address this going forward in a holistic fashion, because the issue is, of course, much bigger than me, Nebraska. And can you give us a sense of how many seeds we're talking about? When all of this was sort of uh, came to light and, and they were shut down, they had 84,000 tons of this, this waste, this wet distillers and piles around the plant. And then, of course, they had these, you know, giant lagoons, um, uh, you know, filled with wastewater that, you know, was overrun with this pesticides. And we should say the the state, when they started testing the levels of the pesticides that were found in the water and in the wet cake, the levels that they were finding of particular insecticides and others were like many thousands of times the levels that the EPA says is safe. So, you know, this isn't just a matter of, oh, some pesticide residues that maybe we wish weren't there. These are extraordinarily high levels that the EPA has said in no way are safe in the water or in the environment. And why would, why would these companies have such a surplus of these treated seeds? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's all market demand and, you know, in any sort of manufacturing or product supply um, you're probably not going to always equal uh, supply and demand, get that to even out perfectly well. So they they need to get rid of these seeds. And Alt-In was advertising, was sending out you know, marketing flyers saying, we'll take your seed, bring it to us. You know, They were even marketing and encouraging these companies to bring them seed even after the regulators had barred them from effectively getting rid of it, from spreading the waste on farm fields. So this just stacked up higher and higher and higher and became this real threat to both human health and environmental health. The University of Nebraska uh, medical researchers and and, uh, agronomic researchers are undertaking a 10-year study now to try to fully understand what this means for human health in the area, and they're quite concerned. You mentioned just a moment ago that the residents don't have a lot of trust um, with some of these big companies that are moving in to help with the cleanup effort. What do residents want to see happen next? Well, you know, I think it runs the gamut with the people I talk to. I mean, they're, they're really angry. They feel like the, uh, the history of the ownership of Alton, that there's been a lot of money flow through there. And they think that there should be, you know, reparations and damages, obviously, to the people in the area. Uh, they worry about the water wells, the aquifer, you know, and, and worry about how how this is actually going to be cleaned up because you might deal with the lagoons and you might deal with the wet cake, but if this contamination, you know, is down into the groundwater, down into the aquifer, you know, what do you do about that? How do you clean that up? And, and perhaps you can't, you know, they, they want some heads to roll and they want to make sure that this really never happens again, any way, shape or form. And as you mentioned, some of the companies, I think you mentioned Corteva, are coming in saying that they're going to help clean up. Are taxpayers on the hook for this particular environmental disaster? Well, certainly um, taxpayer money has been expended already, you know, on this through both the state and the federal agencies that uh, have been doing, you know, site work and, uh, you know, trying to take a look at this and deal with this. 
but the companies do say that this cleanup, that they want to absorb the cost for this. So, you know, again, I think this is a story that has yet to play out fully and we'll just have to keep a really good eye on it. Is it unlikely that this ethanol plant will ever come back online? You know, I, I think that question too still needs to be asked. Uh, the There's been a real fight over the permit for this. Do you revoke it or do you suspend it? The attorney for the Alton, um, Alton ethanol plant had been seeking just a suspension of the permit, um, but the local leaders said, no, definitely we are revoking this. <laughs> we don't want any chance of you coming back. You're also following a story down in Texas, Dicamba Drift has become a big problem for grape growers down there. What's going on and what are the farmers there doing about it? Yeah, there's uh, this litigation, you know, just is not going away, certainly um, against Bayer and BASF, both of which, you know, have brought forward this, uh, much like the Roundup Ready system, sort of a dicamba ready system, uh, where, you know, you can plant dicamba tolerant uh, crops and spray your dicamba uh, during warm months and dicamba, uh, as your listeners probably know, it was prone to not stay where you spray. Um, so much as what we've seen in Missouri and other states, uh, we're seeing in Texas, you have 60 uh, grape growers in the state of Texas uh, who are now suing Bayer, saying that their crops have been damaged, their vineyards are being essentially you know, wiped out because of this dicamba drift that uh, is coming from soybean and cotton fields in the state. And, uh, you know, this is a problem that's been a problem for the last several years and, and was warned, you know, we were warned by this, farmers and, and regulators were warned that this would be a problem when these companies wanted to, you know, start up the system of dicamba tolerant crops and spraying this dicamba more, more liberally. So it's a real battle, you know, cotton and and uh, soy farmers say, we need this, you know, we need this tool. We need to be able to spray dicamba primarily to deal with weeds that have become resistant to glyphosate. But if dicamba is drifting onto these fields for grapes or other types of crops that are not tolerant, uh, and of course they're being damaged or destroyed, that's a real problem. So the first lawsuit of this kind, you know, was a peach farmer in Missouri and he won his case. Uh, so we'll see now what happens in Texas and how this plays out. Well, tell us a little bit about dicamba. I mean, I don't think it's as well known as something like glyphosate or maybe as well known as its its commercial name, Roundup. Um, how does it work? Why is it different? Why is it used? Well, dicamba really has seen a resurgence um, and is growing in use now because of glyphosate. It's an older herbicide. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, one of the problems with dicamba has been that it uh, doesn't always stay where you spray it. It's not as stable. Uh, it can drift and it can volatilize. And it's always been known to be particularly, you know, dangerous, I guess, in terms of movement uh, in these warm months. So it primarily was used, uh, you know, before you really got into, you know, sort of this May to August, you know, it, April to August, depending on where you are geographically. It wasn't typically sprayed during those months, but with these glyphosate tolerant crops and where you can spray directly over the growing crops, it, it really changed uh, agricultural practices just, just as the Roundup Ready system did. So um, at least for soy and cotton growers, uh, it's been something of a benefit. But for anybody who's not growing uh, dicamba tolerant crops, it's been a real nightmare. You know, we've had battles in farm country over this, as I said, for many years. And the interesting thing, I did a story about this in The Guardian, when was this, a year or so ago? The 
court documents that, that have come out through the litigation show that uh, Monsanto, which you know Bear bought in 2018, but Mon- Monsanto, when they when they were preparing to launch this this system, this dicamba tolerant system with this new dicamba herbicide, when they were launching this, they knew and they expected that there would be this damage to farmers who were not buying their special seeds, to farmers who were not growing their crops. And they saw it as a profit opportunity. They talked internally about how this would be, you know, a mechanism or an incentive to get people to start planting their seeds. So, you know, that's one of the factors that cost them the case in the peach grower. Uh, so we will see what happens with these grape growers. But yeah, they they were aware and they actually counted on the fact that it probably was going to be damaging to, to uh, neighbors who weren't using their seeds. So it's damaging to crops that are not resistant in some way. Is it also harmful to humans? Well, you know, that again is a subject of debate. Uh, it, it is considered, you know, toxic at some level, although not, uh, it's not considered to be carcinogenic. You know, there are, there are various classifications about it. Uh, it hasn't been determined to be a probable human carcinogen as, uh, as glyphosate has. So but an interesting thing, um, there is a Heartland research study that's going on looking at the effects of dicamba, 2,4-D, glyphosate, and other herbicides on reproductive health right now. And uh, the findings so far are really not very encouraging. They're looking at pregnant women and trying to understand, particularly in farm country, you know, are these women who are pregnant and their newborns as they're exposed to these high levels of herbicides, you know, what is happening? And dicamba growth, they've developed some graphics that are tracking the use of dicamba and the use of 2,4-D, both of which have seen renewed interest in use because of the weed resistance issues with glyphosate. And they're showing them rising very dramatically to to the levels that we've been seeing with glyphosate and 2,4-D even exceeding the levels of use that we've seen with glyphosate over the next several years. So we do need to start paying a lot more attention to 2,4-D and to dicamba particularly. Well, Carrie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to take this moment to introduce our sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this, farms that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data show farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Okay, Jesse Frost. I'll be the first to admit that this show tends to favor authors who take a big picture view of our food system. I'm not apologizing necessarily, but I do recognize that can sometimes be a bit overwhelming. On this episode, we really get into some of the mechanics of ecological farming. And to my mind, there's no better person to do that with than Jesse Frost. He's a gifted communicator, he's intensely curious, and he puts out a hell of a podcast. I'll keep this introduction short because my conversation with Jesse ran a little longer than usual, but I think it's well worth your time. 
Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jesse Frost. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse. Uh, well, thank you for having me, Ben. I'm super excited to be here. Well, let's begin today like you usually begin your podcast. Tell us about your farm. What are you growing there? And how did Rough Draft Farmstead come to be? Yeah, so we are a three quarter of an acre market garden. We may be up to an acre by next year, but we're currently kind of working into an acre. We just moved. Uh, but we are about three quarters of an acre market garden, uh, mixed vegetable production. And we focus a lot on different no tillage techniques and ecological uh, things like, uh, you know, we're starting to put in more hedgerows and, and, uh, you know, incorporate birds and all of the thing, you know, uh, birdhouses and all of the things, um, that's all very important to us. So that's, that becomes part of our farming practices. We're certified organic. We sell primarily to the farmer's market with some small wholesale accounts here, or there, you know, our restaurant sales kind of went down obviously through COVID like most people, but, um, you know, those are so slowly starting to rebound. So, yeah, that's kind of our, that's kind of the gist of the, the, you know, where we are specifically, it's about, uh, 30 minutes from Lexington, um, about 45 minutes from Louisville. That's kind of central Kentucky. Uh, those are the two biggest cities in the state. So, um, yeah, we are, you know, the, the sort of origin story is that I, I started farming about 12 years ago. Um, I was working in New York city in a wine shop there and got really interested in some of the producers who were really creating wines that were very funky, very low refinement, very what we called natural wines at the time. And I think that still, still is popular today, but, um, we, you know, I was really into those wines and I would go visit those winemakers and they inspired me to want to be a farmer. I knew I didn't want to make wine, but I knew I was really interested in being in agriculture, just meeting these people who like to dip their hands in the dirt and smell the soil and, you know, just, were very excited about their practices. So I was like, I could see myself doing this. I, I think that's a good thing to do. So we, I moved back to Kentucky where I grew up. Mm -hmm. I was born in Colorado, but I grew up in Kentucky and we, you know, I, I found a farm, uh, an internship at a place called bug tussle farm in Southern Kentucky. And it was everything I wanted. It was, they did all the things they did, you know, animal, uh, you know, rotational grazing, uh, row crops, uh, you know, bees, everything. And we did pigs, turkeys, everything my first year. So I got a lot of experience with that and uh, decided to come back for a second year and did a second year internship there and met my wife the second year. And so that ended up being very fortuitous to, for both of us to have left. I was living in New York city. She was living in Chicago and we were kind of like, well, meeting somebody may be hard, just moving into the middle of nowhere, but we met each other and uh, we've, you know, we started our farm the next year. So this would have been like 2012 would have been our first year. And we had a series of kind of failures um, getting the farm, getting a place to farm. We had a couple different family lands that didn't work out. Uh, after a lot of work and some of it was our fault. Some of it was their fault, just miscommunication. And then we moved back to where we interned in bug tussle and we started a farm there and oh, the whole time we're calling it rough draft farmstead, which becomes increasingly a, a apropos as you move farms and um, you know, just more and more rough drafts. And we, you know, we moved back and they sold us a small plot of land and we built a cabin there and we farmed off grid there on like half an acre, I think is it what it hit at the most. And we were doing that kind of more market garden style. And that was, you know, that would have been like 2012 through two 
or four years. So right through 2016. And then in 2016, we moved closer back to our family. We had a kid, um, in 2014 and we were kind of feeling how difficult that was to do, to have a child kind of out, you know, we were three hours away from our folks. We were an hour and a half from, uh, you know, a major city. We were, we were kind of, we were really isolated in other words. And so we had a kid and we decided that they, we wanted that, that kid to be raised closer to, uh, the parent, the grandparents. And so we moved closer to central Kentucky where we both grew up. I grew up in Richmond. My wife grew up in Woodford County, which is, uh, Versailles where a lot of the horses come from the famous horses. And so we, uh, yeah, we, you know, kind of found, uh, a property here and we were on that property for four years. And one of the biggest uh, restrictions with that property was that it was just not accessible to customers. And when COVID hit and we realized like how important it was to be more accessible to customers, just the way the driveway worked and everything, it was not a very, it was, it, we just felt like we weren't part of our community. We felt, again, we felt really isolated and this other property had come up and the opportunity just, it spoke to us and we thought we'll just we'll move one more time. We'll try this last, we'll give it one more go. And so we went from 13 acres down to what is now six acres, but it, the, the value of this new property is it's very excited. It's going to be very accessible to customers as we build it. We moved in December and it's, you know, it's got a farm store option and all. And, and so that's, it's a nice building, right? Not far from the road with a good space that we can turn into somewhat of a parking lot. So that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the general rundown of how we got to this specific space. Well, you mentioned a moment ago that you interned at Buck Tussle Farm in Kentucky. I'm curious to know more about what their driving philosophy is or was and how that shaped your approach to farming. I value that experience quite a bit. Uh, Eric and Cher Smith, they're incredible farmers. And Eric was really getting into rotational grazing when I arrived there. And he became quite a mentor to me on all fronts of the vegetable garden, which he managed very heavily with cover crops and compost. And we did some no-till stuff, but we did also, you know, a lot of tillage. So I got actually really good at tillage techniques and proper till, you know, uh, just really responsible tillage and proper cultivation techniques and all of those things. And, and kind of more of a row crop tractor situation we were doing, I think at the peak of about three acres and with soil blocks. And, uh, it was, you know, they're, they're, one of their driving things was, uh, you know, biodynamic agriculture. So we did some biodynamic preps and that was very, that was all great to me because I loved biodynamic wines. I wanted to get down and understand how they worked on the agricultural side. And so that was, um, that was re they're just really amazing. I thought that that experience was one of the best entries into farming that I could have had. I mean, they took, you know, it was an unpaid internship um, for the first year and what they did to, to make up for that just the amount of things they offered in terms of, you know, we would go on walks through the woods and he would introduce, introduce us to foraging and to different medicinal herbs. And, you know, we spent a lot of time just talking about different kinds of birds and different trees. And we, it was just a very all encompassing education. It was one of the best, it was one of the best experiences I could have, you know, possibly hoped for getting into farming. And, and, and how does rough draft sort of contrast with bug tussle in terms of what it looks like today? Yeah, that's a good question. So one of my regrets though, even though I loved that experience is not farming on a couple different farms that did things differently. And so everything that we, our farm looks very different from that farm. 
And, uh, and I can contrast that in a second, but that, that was one of the things that coming out of that experience that I, in, in a way regretted not having spent at least one or two more years working on other farms that were just different. They were just, yeah. um, you know, more biointensive because they had a lot more acreage to work with, uh, than kind of we've ever really had. And that allowed them to do, you know, things maybe more with, uh, you know, cover cropping and things that we've been able to up until now, we're starting to be able to do more of that just because our acreage is a little bit, our flat acreage, the, the arable acreage is a little bit more. So we'll be able to do a lot more with cover cropping, but um, you know, just things that we wouldn't be able to do. And then also like we were really interested in going no-till and the things that it possibly was going to bring to our farm of reducing weed pressure. And I didn't really want to mechanize. I saw how expensive it would be to get a tractor. I didn't really like working with tractors. I enjoyed being on a tractor, but I hate switching implements, smashing yeah. my fingers in the, in the metal. And, um, I, I absolutely enjoy working them, but the, yeah, that, that element, I knew that I'm not very mechanically minded. So I wanted something smaller and simpler. And so we got a BCS kind of in the style of Jean-Martin Fortier and the market gardener and Elliot Coleman. And, yeah. um, that became more of our style doing more permanent beds and, uh, focusing more in on kind of hand tools and keeping it really simple and tight. And, um, but there was a huge learning curve because bug tussle was dry farmed and, uh, I needed irrigation to do more of a biointensive and I knew nothing about irrigation. I still feel like I'm quite, quite a deficit for knowledge about irrigation and they, you know, we are doing things, really intensive plantings, uh, multiple crops in a bed in the same year and things that we weren't necessarily doing on bug tussle that we kind of had to learn on our own, but we had a good, you know, we had a good base from which to learn. And that was helpful. I mean, that was, you know, that comes in handy still today, just knowing certain things when I run into certain situations that things that we learned at, at Bug Tussle that we were able to bring to this farm. Uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely a different, it, you know, and even now, like I get more and more into different no-tillage techniques and different ideas that we are implementing on our farm that I don't think would be entirely possible on a row crop farm, especially things, you know, just the uh, yeah, just the intensity, the, the amount of irrigation and those sorts of things that we would need to be able to do it on a, uh, on a row crop farm would be a lot of work, I think just moving the pipes and everything, but yeah, it's, it's definitely looks different, but there's also, uh, there's also elements of it. I know how to dry farm like this year. We've had trouble getting our irrigation stuff because everybody is, uh, because everybody's backed up. So yeah, we've had been able to utilize different techniques for that. We learned a bug tussle in terms of you know, dry farming. And that's been super helpful. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think there's some contrast there, but there's also a lot we brought with us. And, and so how did no-till come to be on your radar? What, what was the inflection point there? You do this internship at Bug Tussle, and then eventually it sort of evolves into sort of your current philosophy on market gardening. Yeah. So there, it, it was the sum of many different things, I think. So one element of it would be that we you know, wanted to reduce our weed pressure. And we were, you know, especially in our first years kind of starting out on our own, we were noticing like, yeah, we were having to fight a lot of weeds and we were also having to, um, you know, needed some sort of mechanization. So we were kind of feeling like we didn't want to do a lot of mechanization. We were just thinking like, is there a way that we can just shove the plants in the ground? <laughs> like, is that a thing? And we started to read about no tillage and, and, um, really what we ran into was we'd find, you know, the conservation agriculture is what really popped onto our radar. Right. And, um, that there was something really attractive about that, the simplicity of just 
you know, keep it covered, keep the soil covered as much as possible, keep it planted as much as possible and disturb it as little as possible. I loved that, the, the sort of elegance of those, of that three, of those three things or four things, if you want to include, you know, keeping it as biodiverse as possible. But the thing that always lacked was, you know, defining how to do that. Like there was, you flip to the, to the pages that would tell you, you know, like the technical details. And it really just was effectively, you know, use cover crops. And then it didn't really follow up. And that's where we, you know, we knew we wanted to go in that direction. And the closest thing we found for what we were also trying to achieve financially was, you know, the market gardener and JM Fortier's. And we love that system. I still think that system is really brilliant, but that's kind of where we started. But we tried a bunch during all of our farming stuff. We were always trying different things. We were trying hay mulches. We were trying straw mulches. We were, um, you know, we never really got to the point of trying a compost mulch because I was always convinced it would be too nutrient heavy. But later on, we started getting into compost mulching. And we, yeah, we tried a bunch of different stuff. And sometimes I would just get frustrated with a bed and be like, this doesn't need to be turned over. So I will pull the crop out and just shove another one in and see how it goes. And I did that. We did that sort of stuff a lot and it really evolved in the tunnels. I think this is common in my conversations uh, with other growers is that the, the, you know, a lot of times that the first time, the first place that you really start going no-till is in the tunnels because it can be kind of hard to maneuver a machine in there. And it's just faster to, you know, get in there with a bucket and a knife and pop a crop out and throw another one in there or use something like a tilter or, or you know, we don't use that, but that's, you know, those sorts of tools, that's where that really makes a lot of sense because, you know, I, I remember Elliot Coleman mentioned, Elliot Coleman mentions, mentioned somewhere in one of his books, just the fumes uh, from the BCS was a little bit much in the tunnel. So he stopped using that in there. And, and that, that kind of, that is where we sort of started to be able to develop some of the techniques that worked in our system, but it was really a matter of, of feeling like it wasn't possible and couldn't see, didn't, there wasn't a lot of visibility of other people doing it. I mean, there was Jeff Moyer doing it kind of on a larger scale. Yeah. Um, and I would come across people doing it in cover crops and those sorts of things. And then you would see like small scale backyard gardening stuff and some permaculture texts, but there was, it didn't feel like there was much in the, you know, market garden arena for really reducing the tillage and reducing the weed pressure and not having such reliance on tools and cultivation and those sorts of things. And in also increasing soil health and, and, and pliability and all those things. So we, um, yeah, I mean, it, it really was born out of interest in improving the crop quality and the crop production and reducing the amount of time we spent cultivating. And it was, it really was magnified when we started to be able to find people online who were doing the, who were really doing those techniques successfully on a scale. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking like, uh, uh, primarily people like, singing frogs farm when I far started to farm started to see their different uh, YouTube videos and their seminars that they would do and that they were posted online that it's really set off some sparks and I heard them on the farmer to farmer podcast and that like just those it just slowly started building that all the things that we've been trying we should just keep going and um, yeah I mean that's kind of where it started that's that's like how it really entered the picture and then we had such success in the early years and in the early years of trying to go fully no-till and with some of our different trials that we were like, okay, well, let's just keep going. In, in your new book, The Living Soil Handbook, you describe the history of tillage. How has the definition of tillage evolved over time? 
Yeah, in the book, I propose a sort of more precise definition of tillage. And I think it's really important then when we're talking about tillage to be uh, precise in that definition, because it's kind of, it sometimes gets conflated with things like disturbance. And I think that's um, an unfortunate comparison, or it's an unfortunate conflation, because, you know, disturbance is not always tillage. The soil is in, you know, I describe it as being disturbed all the time, you know, by earthworms, by roots, moving it around, moving the soil aggregates around and by microbes and uh, moles and voles and all of the things are constantly disturbing the soil, but you know, humans, and, and they're doing it in a way that is beneficial to the soil. And I, and I always want to stress that humans can do that too. We often think of ourselves outside of nature but we are absolutely a part of that. And we are able to, you know, uh, disturb the soil in ways that benefit the soil, that benefit the ecology, that, that improve this, the health of the crop, that increase the ability for roots to dig into the soil and, and extract nutrients. So when I think about what tillage is, and like you said, I describe a little bit of the history, but when I think about what tillage is, tillage is not disturbance necessarily. Tillage is anything we do to the soil that has a long-term negative effect on it. So it can be the rototiller, uh, though it depends on what the next step is. So if you're using a rototiller or a rotary plow to open up a plot, but you intend to just keep using the rotary plow to, to manage it or the tiller, um, you know, that's going to have a lot longer of an effect on negative effect on the soil than if you're using the tiller to open up the soil and maybe break up some compaction, but then you're, you know, converting it to cover crops or you're covering it with a mulch. And then you're, you know, you're, you're just breaking through the compaction, which is also not addressing compaction is almost a more harmful thing to do to your soil than just covering it, than just addressing it with a tiller because compaction can be so incredibly hard on plant roots and the success of a crop. And so my, my, my opinion on tillage has changed a lot as I've started to look at what successful, uh, you know, agriculture really looks like and what healthy soil really looks like and what it's required. And that's throughout history. Um, you know, the, the definition of tillage in the history books or in the, the dictionaries rather is just the, you know, the, the, uh, preparation of the ground to grow crops like the, and that, you know, preparing the ground for growing crops is, is tillage and it was for thousands of years, you know, some intensified small scale disturbances provided for, you know, proved to be a great way to in increase diversity when you're talking about indigenous cultures who did this for thousands of years and, you know, especially in, in North America and they would do small, you know, small uh, plots and they would farm in those and they would grow various crops and, they would also do a lot of foraging and they would do a lot of different things to, in, to increase, kind of increase their food supply throughout the year. And those things prove to increase the biodiversity, but it's the, it's the kind of tillage, it's the intention behind it. And it's the, the uh, way that it was fallowed often after, you know, maybe a year or two in, in, in production. And, um, you know, and they, through doing that, they, you know, Native Americans created a really diverse country. And, you know, when, when settlers arrived, they found birds enough to block out the sun. They found, right. you know, pastures filled with wildflowers and butterflies and rivers teeming with fish. I, these are things that like we, we can't conceive in our modern day. 
And, and, you know, I've made the argument before that I think removing Native Americans from the soil was the first act of tillage. You know, that had long-term, extraordinarily negative effects on the soil. And so, you know, the, the, when we're talking about tillage, we're talking about something that we do to the soil that has a long-term negative effect and doesn't have the intention behind it to improve the soil, to keep photosynthesis going at all times, um, which is always one of my favorite subjects, because when we're talking about soil health, we are talking about photosynthesis. You know, the soil is essentially a giant battery and plants are the solar panels and we have the roots and the mycorrhizal fungi that are the, the infrastructure. And then, you know, the, the battery, the storage element is really the, the microbes and the worms and all the animals and anything above ground. And when you see what the Americas used to look like pre-colonization, you see, you know, in, in accounts in various, various historic, historical documents, mm -hmm. you see a place rich with life above ground. And that is reflective of how rich the soil was below ground. And yeah, I mean, I don't know that, that I probably have gone too far off the, uh, the, the main point there, but no, not at all. Yeah. That, I mean, that's kind of how it, I, I try to think of it more broadly because I think that just getting back to the, the idea of like, sometimes we conflate it with disturbance. I've heard people say like a, you know, pulling a carrot is disturbance. And I think when we start to think about pulling carrots as tillage, then we've gotten off the, we've lost the plot because the carrot has been sitting there in the soil photosynthesizing, feeding, feeding soil microbes, building, building soil microbial populations for, you know, 60, 70 days. Um, we pull it out. We, we add a little bit of air to the soil and we improve the, you know, the, the, uh, the air transfer for, for plant roots that go into their next, you know, we've improved the soil by growing the carrot. And I think anything you're doing to improve the soil can't be, you know, considered disturbance can't be considered tillage. Well, so what exactly happens to the life in the soil when you do intensive plowing and production over time? Yeah. So, uh, many things. So one of the, the first thing that happens, let's just say that we've pulled a crop out and we're ready to get our cover crop in or whatever it is that we want to do next and cover crops are great, but let's say that we've just, we've, or we're, let's just start at the spring. So we're preparing the soil for the season and we need, we've got it. It's kind of a hard pan or it's maybe it's still in weeds or maybe it's in cover crop, which is great too. Um, but we know it. And then we, then we rototill it and we turn it under and then what's happening when we're doing that all the time, when we're doing that for the next crop and the next crop is that we are taking, you know, a lot of air and we're whipping it into the soil and we're taking the, all of the beneficial things that we've done to the soil, all the, all the soil aggregates that we've created through, you know, the bacteria and fungi I've created, we're taking all of the carbon, the roots and all of that stuff. And we're just kind of crushing it and we're mixing it up with a bunch of oxygen loving bacteria that just start consuming that. So all, mm. a lot of the good that we've done, a lot of the, the carbon that we put in the soil, um, we are, you know, we're breaking it apart and we're feeding it to bacteria primarily, because that's who likes uh, really, really oxygen rich environments. And, you know, when that, when we lose that, you know, soil organic matter, when we lose all that carbon that we've created, that we put below soil, it, the soil is not going to retain water as well. It's not going to move water through in a heavy rain events, or it's not going to retain it as well in, in droughts. It is, in, there's not going to be as much nitrogen available because a lot of the nitrogen that our plants consume actually comes from the soil organic matter. And there's, 
you know, we're going to, it's going to require us to continue to amend it more. And um, it's also going to compact more because the, the carbon and uh, the various aggregates are keeping the soil pliable. And so, you know, when you till it, you end up with more soil compaction on the surface. You end up compaction layers underneath. Uh, those are both things that are incredibly restrictive to plant growth. Yeah. And you tear apart your mycorrhizal fungi, the, you know, the fungi that, that we can, t- that can tap into multiple plants, can connect to multiple plants. So you don't want to tear those up too much if you don't have to. And, uh, you know, and then you start when you do that, you are also, you know, kind of stale seed bedding a lot of your microbial life. So, you know, some, you can do it a few times and you can get away with it, especially if you're using cover crops. Uh, I think if you're going to be doing any sort of tillage and a lot of larger scale people, um, you know, there's those, that technique tends to work for them. And I think, so you can manage some of those microbial life by, by, you know, using cover crops, but what you're doing, if you're not using a lot of cover crops and you're not able to really tend to the soil is yeah, you're, it, it does, it, it ends up depleting the soil carbon. And I kind of compared soil to a battery earlier. Um, you're using the energy and you're not replenishing it. And that's where developing no-till techniques is important. And even if it's, you know, I think I'm, I try to be really even handed. And when I think about this stuff, I try to not say that, you know, be too dogmatic about what is tillage and what is not and who should be using it and who shouldn't. I think it's all about your context. I think that's extremely important, but doing as little, uh, aggressive, you know, repeated tillage, mechanical tillage to the soil as possible is really important. We're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. We help farmers sell direct, and for this week's segment on Tractor Time, we invited Kelsey from DX Beef, located on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. We asked her about her experience using Barn to Door to sell direct, and here's what she had to say. I ended up having found Barn to Door in October of 2019. And it was one of those things where it was like, okay, Kelsey, go big or go home. You're gonna buy this website platform and you're gonna make yourself use it or you're just gonna stop. Because at the time, prior to Barnes & Door, I mean, I was primarily functioning on like Facebook Messenger. (laughs) So it would be like, do you use hormones? Do you use antibiotics? Is it grass fed? Is it corn finished? You know, all of these questions that would come in about the product. Additionally to that, I didn't have anything for a customer relations database to like manage my customers and to save their information and to track what they've ordered. You know, all of these things are are critical in marrying a food business to a agricultural production business, right? And Barn to Door in October of 2019, honestly held me accountable. (laughs) I I became a a member of the Barn to Door family. And that's truly what it was, them like accepting me into the family and my account manager at the time, he was like, okay, this is gonna be your homework. And next week when we meet, I need you to have this done. And I needed that because I wouldn't have committed myself to that sort of work on the business itself. I would have been too busy working in the business of getting deliveries scheduled and stuff instead of making the system function better for me and more effectively. If you want to hear more from Kelsey, go to barntodoor.com slash tractor time. Thanks for listening. 
We do a monthly segment with the Rodale Institute that focuses on no-till regenerative organic practices. So I, I think our audience is somewhat familiar with no-till of a, a certain sort, but I was hoping you could give an overview of some different types of no-till. Rodale, for example, specializes in larger production models. So they're planting a lot of cover crops and using this big piece of machinery called the roller crimper to turn those crops over. And in some cases, um, no-till is part of an industrial chemically intensive model of food production. And then there's what you do. Could you walk us through the spectrum of no-till practices and how they differ? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. The So like you said, there's there's been for a long time, the sort of uh, roller crimper cover crop methods. And then there's been the kind of uh, chemical dependent methods that are spray down and then plant into that. Um, and then there's been the small scale stuff, which is a whole world of just you know, mulches and, and different interplantings and all that stuff. And I think, you know, to give you kind of a rundown of the ones that fit best into that, into our scale, which is really like anywhere from an eighth of an acre, really intensive, small scale, two, three to five to 10 acres. And even up to 20, there's, there's a gentleman in uh, Canada, uh, Dan Oostenbrink, who's doing really great stuff on 20 acres, but um, is, so there's kind of the two main methods. Um, there's a few, but there's the two main ones are deep compost mulch, which is often called the no dig system in Europe. And that is effectively using a deep layer of compost and using that as both the growing medium and as the, uh, mulch for the surface. So an example of this would be if you're starting a new garden, often especially if you're in denser soil, you're going to broad fork it, you're going to open it up a little bit maybe, or maybe even start with opening it up entirely, doing a plowing, doing a disking or tilling or however you want to do it. Um, then you're going to set your beds up permanently by laying down something like cardboard, some sort of weed block. And then you're going to, you know, uh, generally pile like a decently high, uh, maybe eight inches or so of compost over top of that, you'll let it break down for a little while. And then that's ready to plant. And effectively, you won't ever turn that in. You won't ever turn that over. That will just stay as a surface mulch. And uh, some growers to look to for that are Charles Dowding. Uh, Richard Perkins is another one. Um, that's, I believe, how Singing Frogs Farm set up their farm to begin with. Um, so that's kind of like the, you know, that's like the, the deep compost mulch system is what we call it here. And then no dig in, in, in uh, England, Europe. And then the other kind of technique, one of the others is, is sort of the, um, you know, uh, small scale cover crop techniques. And this is, you know, Daniel Mays from Frith Farm has done a really good job of, of uh, describing this and, and developing this on his three acres in Maine. And, um, and he just wrote a new book that is really excellent that the listeners should check out, but is, you know, more um, about using cover crops similar to the crimp roller crimper method where you're using a lot of rye and that sort of thing. But instead of using a roller crimper to terminate it, you're using, uh, in his case, he often uses boards strapped to two people's feet. They go down the bed, they knock the bed down and then mm -hmm. throw a tarp over top of that. And that terminates the, the cover crop. And then that can be planted in a few weeks or uses uh, winter kill cover crops like peas and oats, peas and oats terminate there. Obviously, um, oats are a little bit harder in our climate, but peas generally terminate in most when you get a few freeze frost, frost freeze cycles, but the using that over winter and then raking it off and planting into those beds in the spring. Uh, one of this, one of the main tenants of this is always permanent beds. The beds are never really moving. And, um, that just allows you to really develop that space and, you know, 
walkways become important. Walkway management becomes important. It's always one of my favorite conversations, but the, yeah, that, I mean, those are the two main one. And then you have things like uh, what Connor Crickmore does, uh, Never Seeing Farm, and what JM Fortier does, where it's super light surface tillage. They're using roughly, I mean, in a lot of cases, using a very similar amount of compost, um, but they're working it into the soil, which provides, in some ways, you know, in, in just those those top inch or two, um, a little bit more uh, seed to soil contact for germination and those sorts of things. So that's one thing you can run into with deep compost mulch is poor soil is poor is poor germination if the um, soil is too mulchy, and or if the compost is too mulchy. So yeah, that's 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 also in there in the techniques. And then there's also mulching. Different, you know, uh, there's different hybridizations too, like uh, straw mulching, but also maybe using different techniques depending on what crop is coming in and coming out. Well, so to go deeper into your own approach and how it's developed over time. You know, what is what does rough draft look like and what what methods are you using consistently? Yeah. So we use kind of a deep, I kind of often call it a shallow compost mulch system, um, which is trying to keep this the mold, the compost on the surface. Uh, while also not having it be so deep that I'm going to run into germination issues, which I still occasionally do. Um, but the, the idea being that we're putting about, we're putting probably about four or five inches of compost instead of eight or 10, you know, really, really deep. Um, we're, we're going a little bit more shallow than that, but that's not the only technique we use because of my role at no-till growers and, you know, with the no-till market garden podcast, I try to have a little experience with everything. And just, I feel like that really helps me to connect to, to connect the dots when I'm having a conversation with somebody to have some experience with it. And so I try a lot of different stuff, but that's the one that we lean on the most uh, right now. But we're also on this new farm. We have kind of three really intensive plots that we're managing in that system that I just described. And then we also are opening up four plots that we're going to manage with cover crops. And so that those four that we're managing with cover crops are not going to be for the intensive crops. They're going to be for the long season crops that we really enjoy growing and that we want to grow with, especially for winter production for, for winter sales. Uh, and that would be like potatoes, sweet potatoes, uh, garlic, and uh, often different kinds of corn. And then we have a hodgepodge of corn and peanuts and some other things. And so that's like kind of a four block rotation. And that's, that's one that we're going to manage more with, uh, you know, cover crop mulching instead of compost mulching and try and develop that system to help people, you know, help have some insight for people who don't have access to good compost or much compost at all, or who are just starting out and don't have the capital to spend, uh, for that amount of compost. Cause it can get very expensive. It's getting increasingly more expensive, uh, as more people get into these methods and get into growing. And so, yeah, just trying to develop different systems there. Um, another thing that we do on our farm that I think is somewhat unique in here is that we do our, we've really increased our living pathway presence. And this is something that is really dear to me at the moment. I love our living pathways. They are, um, my favorite thing on our farm at the moment. I, I like, the way they look. I love the aesthetic. I love the way they feel. I can work in them. They're very soft. They're not muddy. They, they don't make the bottoms of my harvest bins muddy. They, um, they don't hurt my knees. I definitely plant and harvest a lot off of my knees. So, you know, with a bad, I have had, (laughs) I've had bad back issues over the years. So that's been, you know, something that's very, really beneficial to me. And, uh, we're trying to develop that into a system that makes sense for 
more people, but it definitely makes sense in my context specifically because we're in a very wet climate. Like it would not make sense in an arid environment, but we're in a very wet climate. We've, you know, we get on average 50, at least 50 inches of rain every year. And then we've been getting, you know, significantly more than that. A few years, we were close to 70, uh, maybe above 70. And it was, uh, so that, you know, helping to move the water a little better, um, keep the soil in place and just be a nice soft landing pad. Let's talk more about compost. Um, in the book, you mentioned that there are four different types. What are those? We tend to think of compost as one thing, just compost. And that's what you, you know, you order, order your compost. Um, but the, you know, that's not very helpful, especially when you're using it in the way that we're using it on our farms and the, you know, in the, in the, especially the quantities that we're using it. So I kind of diff, this isn't something that you're going to necessarily hear from your average composter. If you call them and ask them for one of the next four composts that I'm about to list, they would probably have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> But the, you know, we have um, four different types is that I broke it down to mulching, inoculating, uh, nutritional and fertilizing. And so starting with fertilizing, these are essentially your composts that are providing high nitrogen compost. So a fertilizing compost would be something like chicken, composted chicken manure, very high mm-hmm. nitrogen, uh, a lot of other, you know, foul manures like that, that, that would be very high nitrogen and they provide like a very kind of instant burst to your crop. So that's a fertilizing compost. And you would not want to use a fertilizing compost in the situation where you're doing deep compost mulch. It would absolutely burn the fire out of your roots. Right. And, and it would also create a lot of environmental issue. I mean, that's, that's, you know, one of the concerns with using heavy compost applications is your environmental concerns. And if we're trying to be good ecological farmers, we do need to take that into consideration. And so then you have what we, what I call mulching compost. And these are composts that tend to be very carbonaceous, you know, often just like decomposed wood chips, like very heavily decomposed wood chips, maybe mixed with some amount of nitrogen and and leaves and that sort of stuff, or it could just be straight leaves, or it could be uh, decomposed straw or something that it has a lot of carbon in it, but is not necessarily as nutritional uh, as other composts. Um, or that have, you know, a wide variety of, of different nitrogenous materials in the manures and et cetera. And then, you know, the next one is the, um, inoculating compost and an inoculating compost is the, you know, is the kind of compost that we make specifically to inoculate our soils with good microbial life. An example of that would be like the Korean natural farming IMO, the indigenous microorganisms, like that's a version of, uh, you know, a good inoculating compost. Another example would be something like vermicompost, vermicast. That can be extremely good for your soil, but using it in excess is not always the best idea. Like, um, uh, you know, there have been some studies on on vermicompost in various situations where it was up, I think it was up to 40% by volume was great depending on what they were growing. But then when you started to exceed that 40% market, it started to have negative effects on the, on the crop production. And so, you know, it's not necessarily something that you could afford to put down for a deep compost mulch, which is like I said, something that we often see is the, the, the quantity that people are using. Um, it wouldn't be something, but you, but mixing it into a mulching compost could make it really great. Uh, or, you know, adding that into your, you know, using it as compost teas and compost uh, extracts and slurries um, is a great way to spread the microbiology. 
And so the last one is the nutritional compost, which is kind of the combination of all of those that has maybe has been professionally balanced, has been really well built um, to kind of provide everything that the soil needs, soil coverage, soil, you know, uh, good nutrients for the plants, good, good nitrogen levels, and is fully decomposed to that sort of, I think it's like 10 to one carbon and nitrogen is what most agronomists are going to consider compost. But differentiating them that way helps, I think, to understand how to use them and what to look for when you're buying them. And you can kind of have hybridizations like um, using mold, like say you only have access to mulching compost primarily. Um, What we often do, because that's often what we only have access to is like this really kind of mulchy compost that I love for for moisture retention, but is really bad for seed germination. Mm -hmm. Um, The, you know, supplementing our own compost and that way we're reducing the cost of that compost, but we're also increasing its, its nutritional quality. So we make a really good compost at home. And then, you know, with all the, you know, inoculating elements of it, run it through a worm bin, maybe partially, and then add that uh, as the first layer. And then over top of that, spread the, the, the mulching compost. There's a lot of potential there for hybridization and utilizing these sort of, this sort of four compost idea in, in different ways. Yeah. So you mentioned you're making a lot of compost on, on your farm. Are you also sourcing it from elsewhere? Yeah. So we're buying the majority of our compost. We can make a small amount just from what we, you know, get out of the fields in terms of like, after we flip a bed of lettuce or whatever, we have a lot of scrap, obviously. So we prefer to compost that and we make really good compost that way. And then we, I'm much bigger into, uh, using, uh, you know, our compost that we make on farm in compost teas and slurries and extracts, uh, because it's just a great way to spread the microbial life. And it's just hard for us to make enough compost and on our scale to cover our farm. And we have in the past done a lot with animals, but we've never put them in a situation where we're collecting their manure. So we don't, we haven't, we don't now, and we haven't ever really had a good option for gaining enough nitrogenous material to, to supplement, you know, for, for like a large scale compost. So we do, we buy it in and we have a good, uh, you know, NOP compliant, you know, uh, composter in Kentucky. Uh, we actually have a couple of them and, and I hope to see more. I want to see more composters. I think that's a field that, you know, farmers are really itching to have more of, and I think there's a lot of food waste. I think there's a lot of carbon waste out there. I think that we could f- definitely, you know, use a lot more, uh, people who are interested in the microbiology and getting good compost, you know, nutritional composts put together. Um, oh, and one thing I should say about nutritional compost, if you're looking for one is uh, raised bed mix is a good example of a good nutritional compost um, made by a professional. But um, yeah, I mean, we need more of that too, uh, is, you know, so we, but to answer your question, yeah, we do supplement. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned sort of all the carbon waste that's going on. And I've heard you talk about this before, um, that we have this huge untapped resource in food scraps and wood chips, and most of that's just ending up in landfills. I mean, what are your views on that? I mean, how can that trend be reversed? Yeah, I think that one of the things that I I've said often is that if your dump is taking on wood chips and taking on all of these things and they are not trying to create a product out of it, that's an opportunity to go there and see if you can't rent that space for, you know, compost production and use their space and maybe bring in your own equipment or ask them if you can use theirs. But that is a huge, like that's often where they're going because um, I think it's not everywhere, but uh, places that are dealing with a lot of wood chips 
they're, you know, the people that are doing the drops, dropping off the wood chips and doing the work are not necessarily going to chase down every farmer who's interested in wood chips. Now, a lot of farmers do get that access, but we've had, we've struggled to get wood chips here, but the dump has no issue getting wood chips. So Mm, it's, it's been, we, we, it's hard for us to get, that's another reason we moved is we hoped our visibility off the road could allow us to get more wood chips. And so far it has not been successful, but we've, we're not giving up hope, but the, but we know where they go. If you know where they, where the carbon goes, and I'm talking not just wood chips, there's tons of cardboard that ends up at the dump, like perfectly good non inked cardboard that ends up there uh, that could be used in, in composting operations if need be. And yeah, wood chips, the the leaves, just the number of leaves that get sucked up off the side of the road in the fall and dumped at the dump here. Um, you know, we have a ton of deciduous forest and it's just, the, you know, people rake their leaves, they put them on the side of the road and we have trucks that come and scoop them up and they take them to the dump. And that you know, diverting that, getting in touch with your municipalities and getting in touch with the people that do, who privately run those companies. I think, you know, there's so much potential there, just the carbon waste. And then also the waste food waste. I think we need more national programs that are, you know, in incentivizing maybe people to do more composting and to just, you know, figuring out systems for people. Uh, one of the places that we get our uh, compost mix or our soil mix is tilth soil, um, and they're, they basically do uh, their composting operation. They run around and pick up food scraps. And that's part of how they get their material. And we need more of those. We need more people composting because we need more people getting that, those food scraps out before they head to the, to the landfill. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge amount of potential. Just the, the amount of carbon that's used and, and lost and wasted is, is kind of unbelievable to me. And I think there could be so much more uh, done with it. So we're talking about landfills, we're talking about waste. This might be a good opportunity to talk about plastic and and farming. You're using tarps in your operation, but you definitely have some mixed feelings there. What are the pros and cons with using sort of plastic in no-till agriculture? Um, You talk about this quite a bit in your book. Yeah, it's this thing that's always kind of a you know tugging at me is this idea of plastic and plastic reduction. And I think that, you know, I don't see a world in which we ever get entirely away from plastic on farms. I think it has too much value and there's not a gonna be the in that I can see a material coming along that's gonna totally replace it. But that means that we're we need to be very strategic in in where we are using it and how we're using it. And one of the places that has, you know, grown, especially it has almost enabled certain parts of no-till agriculture is the occultation is the, the silage tarp. So for the uninitiated, just placing a silage tarp over, uh, you know, any sort of crop residue and letting that sit for a few weeks, especially in the summer that allows that to break down. And then you can pull the, the silage tarp off and you have like a perfectly clean bed. It's germinated some of the weeds in the soil. It's like a really, really amazing thing. Um, but it's not without its issues, right? So there's uh, the one that I'm most, I'm watching the closest, I think, is the microplastics in soil biology. There's a recent study that came out from, I forget, somewhere in England um, that's talked about the um, effects on soil life of microplastics that come from agricultural plastics. And I worry about that because I see those tarps degrading. And I know that those, those little pieces of plastic are going into the soil and that they are ending up in the guts of worms. We also know it's ending up in the guts in of humans and, and through foods, through agriculture. Um, you know, they've, they're finding them in, uh, plus they're finding plastic in placentas. 
And there's something really, I feel an amount of responsibility to have my goal be to eliminate plastic on the soil. I don't think I can eliminate it from everything. I, I, I've, we've done bulk lettuces and that sort of stuff uh, in the past. And we still intend to do more of that this year now that COVID's kind of passed, but the, um, to an extent, but the, we, you know, the eliminating it on the soil surface is something that's a focus of mine right now. And we've, one of the things that we've started doing, for instance, is we just pulled our garlic and usually what I would do is pull the garlic. I would throw the, I would mow it, pull the, throw the tarp over top, let that sit for about three weeks, pull it off and then plant my fall carrots. Like that's been the strategy for a while. And this year I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to force myself to not do that because it's doing two things. One, it's potentially contributing things like microplastics. And there are also maybe issues with plasticizers. Like uh, I don't know how common uh, phthalates are in things like agricultural uh, silage tarps, but they are a common plasticizer that we also, there may be other plasticizers that have issues on the soil that have issues with human health. So I, there's also that element. And, and uh, I, you know, the putting something on the soil surface like that, I think is, you know, you have to be considerate of those things, but yeah, I mean, so this time, instead of just throwing the tarp over top, we, we went through, we pulled the garlic, we took, you know, one morning and we went through and we pulled all the violets that I had let grow up there because I wasn't too concerned with violets thinking I was just going to throw the silage tarp over. But we went through and we pulled all the violets by hand and then we sowed a cover crop. And so we'll let the cover crop, uh, mixture of fast growing stuff, um, grow. And then we're going to mow that down. And we, if we absolutely have to, we'll apply a little bit more compost, but the next step would be to sow, um, you know, carrots into that. And that's sort of the idea is to reduce the amount of time that the soil is covered. And I mentioned earlier, there's two things. So reduce the amount of time the soil is covered in something that could, you know, kind of, to some extent, harm it, um, right, which I think of as a form of tillage, anything that does long term harm to the soil. So reducing the amount of times that we're keeping something on the soil that could be harming it, but also reducing the amount of time that the soil is not photosynthesizing. So, you know, and there's also positive ways that the tarps could be used um, in that way that could actually increase the, 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 the speed to which a, a soil gets to be photosynthesizing. So I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, using the white side up on carrots is a really fast way to get them to germinate, but just trying to figure out how ways to reduce that usage. And, you know, that's, that's my personal one and other people may, not feel as much of a pull to do that. And that's fine. But I think, um, thinking about our practices more holistically, like, uh, like I said, I mean, out and not just thinking about our farms, but also thinking about the culture around us and how our practices affect everyone. And the idea of, you know, uh, I think the idea really struck me as a father, just thinking about the idea of plastic in the placenta and that, and, you know, in human placenta. And I think that that is really, you know, something that, I'm thinking about when I'm out in the field, uh, how can I eliminate that potential for our customers? I think one of the big questions that skeptics, no-till skeptics have in the beginning is, well, how do you manage pests and weeds? And in part, you just sort of answer that question, but how, how do you explain that to them? How do you talk about it? 
Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the easy answer is that you're keeping the soil from needing weeds. You're keeping the soil from, you know, if it's mulched, if it's covered, then it doesn't have any incentive to grow weeds. And that's kind of the biggest one. If you're keeping the soil covered and it may be a little bit of extra work up front, you're often doing the work in the colder times and the slower times, um, you know, of applying mulches, but that, you know, it's, it's keeping by covering the soil, you're not giving it the incentive to put up extra solar panels because that's really all it is doing. It just, mm-hmm. it has, it's it, that's what those are. Weeds are, weeds are emergency solar panels. And if you eliminate that potential, if you eliminate the need for that and the soil has something to eat, like a good mulch, um, it's not as likely to put that up. And, you know, the, in terms of like uh, management, you know, it's, it's, it, for us, I went from, you know, spending, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 hours a week cultivating to I basically walk around the farm every 10 days and pick out some weeds and it takes me maybe an hour. And that is an enormous reduction in the amount of time that I am required to spend, you know, uh, in the fields. And that means that I can spend more time doing what I love, which is farming sometimes, which is playing around in the garden. I do a lot of that. It's sometimes hard to keep me out of, keep me out of the garden and my days off because I just want to go interplant or I want to go trial something. Um, but that allows me that opportunity to have the energy, to have the time, to spend more time with my family. I'm done at five o'clock every day. Well, really I'm done at four o'clock, but five o'clock is like my absolute cutoff. And that's it. Like the day's done. I go, I hang out with my family. We take a full day off a week, at least during the growing season, during the rest of the season, we take often two or three days off. And, you know, we are, you know, we just, we're not working until dark. I'm not, I still see a lot of farmers who work all the way till nine o'clock at night and you know, they're exhausted and they get up and they do the market and they look exhausted. And I, I just think that, you know, like if we can eliminate that, if you can eliminate just one thing, the weeds, it'll, you know, make such a huge improvement. And I'm not saying we don't have weeds and certainly we mess up and certainly I make mistakes or maybe a compost comes in. That's got more. uh, I had one a few years ago that had a bunch of lambs quarters in it. It was kind of obnoxious, but even that wasn't, is bad as, you know, cultivated soil and that it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And then the crop comes out and then the season's done and you have to deal with the weeds. There's none of that for us. Like it's just the other side of it in terms of practical stuff is I can plant any day of the year. I can plant if it rained, you know, recently we got a ton of rain and uh, it would rain 13 days in a row. And then it was capped off by an inch and a half in 20 minutes on the, on the final Friday. Wow. That day after that rain, immediately following that rain, I could have gone out and planted because of those mulches. I can walk through my fields. I can, there's never a time I'm restricted based on, unless it's really inclement weather, um, just based on my comfort level. But just in terms of the soil, there's rarely, if ever, a time that I'm restricted in what I can do out there. And that's huge. You know, that, that means that I'm not holding off until you know, March to, or April to do anything in the fields. I'm planting in February. I'm planting in March without, you know, any, anything standing in my way beyond the cold. And that has a huge practical and financial benefit. And, and, and how are you, how do you build sort of an ecosystem that sort of allows for beneficial insects to sort of coexist and act as a check and balance on more invasive insects? Yes. Slowly. And sometimes with a lot of frustration, but they, you know, they don't always help you as much as you want them to, but they, 
I think, you know, introducing flowers is so important, you know, in every, in every, in everything, just flowers have bring so much to the table. And I know that Dr. Christine Jones has talked a lot about her love of flowers and the importance of them in the soil. But, you know, we, we are always trying to increase our flowering plants. And that's, I really like thyme flowering, like thyme flowering in the spring, in the summer. Um, I, you know, lots of different uh, annual flowers and we're increasing our perennials, trees, anything, anywhere you can bring in a new flower, especially native flowers is great. I mean, the, you know, the, the, like, for instance, we've been planting, and this is one that I got from Daniel Mays and it's been really great for us is planting sweet, Alys- sorry, sweet alyssum underneath of our tomato plants. And we've done that for the last couple of seasons. And I really love just, I love the way sweet alyssum grows. I like, I feel as though it, the tomatoes have no issue with that plant. And I love the beneficials that it brings in and the pollinators, but specifically the brachinoid wasps. And, you know, for, we have a lot of hornworm issues in, in the South here. And that is something that we've found, you know, that correlation seems to be really healthy. And, and then I, you know, also increasing, like one thing I spoke with um, Dr. Alex Harmon three in couple seasons ago in the summer and she was talking i did an issue on or an episode for the podcast on beneficials increasing beneficial habitat for uh, native bees specifically and she talked about having just like a little bare soil here or there just because they actually like that as a nesting ground hmm. and i thought that was interesting because that definitely goes counter to everything i think about soil but I was thinking, yeah, I mean, sometimes when I see like a bare spot of soil, I may throw some mulch over it. And I'm like, maybe if I, you know, just looking at the science and if that's what it's, you know, somebody who literally studies this stuff is telling me, then maybe that's okay to just leave that one, leave that little bare spot alone and let the native bees have it. And I think, yeah, that's another thing is she also talked about not necessarily promoting those um, bee boxes and, and like the, you know, the insect hotels and that sort of stuff, because if, if you're not cleaning them properly, you know, you may be promoting diseases and bringing in viruses and bringing in mites that may actually harm your, your native populations that you want to encourage. Um, so little things like that. I mean, following that's another element of it. It's like flowers and then following the science because some of that stuff seems intuitive, uh, but it's not necessarily. And then there's a lot of specialists too, in terms of, you know, bringing in some native species to make sure that you're drawing in those specialists and a diversity of crops that the flowering crops, even corn, I grow sweet corn every year. It makes us no money. Um, but I love eating it and I love watching the pollinators all over the tassels. And I just think that is such a, you know, that idea of like more grasses, more flowering crops, and, you know, just to bring in as, as much biodiversity as possible. And we have bird boxes around just for, you know, just for the birds and, and it's great. I, I love it. I love how loud our farm is with, with, you know, bugs and birds and sounds. And that, that to me is just, I want to, I want to farm, you know, coupled with our living pathways. I want to feel like I'm farming in a meadow or farming in a park. Like I feel surrounded by greenery and photosynthesis at all times and ecology. And I, you know, always look for new bugs and I'm looking what the, up what they are and, you know, keeping an eye on that stuff and trying to figure out if I'm doing a good job of increasing their habitat and stuff. So yeah, all of those things. Well, rough draft, as you mentioned earlier, has moved around a little bit, but I'm curious to know at the current iteration of rough draft, what was the soil like when you first started there? And since then, how have you measured success? Are you, are you looking for a certain organic matter percentage? What are the, what are the benchmarks that matter to you? Mm, that's a great question. So 
when we first started looking at our new property, um, so we have, I can talk a little bit about the old property in terms of like what a benchmark for success would look like. Uh, but on the new property, we scouted it as much as we could when we were buying the place. Um, I went around with a shovel, I dug it up, I did a soil test just to kind of get the base level or soil organic matter. Um, and we were looking at just under 5%, which I think is fine for us for our situation, you know, because we're going to add so much compost and those sorts of things. I wasn't too concerned with having, you know, five to three, three to 5%, I think is what the, what the tests showed. And I was, you know, that's, that's a little bit on the low end. I thought about plowing it up and adding compost, but I felt good about how the grass looked. I felt good about how the soil was performing, you know, just in the end of the season when we were kind of dry last year and felt good about how the pastures looked and um, maybe made some assumptions actually. And I, you, I mentioned compaction and drainage a lot in the book. Um, but I kind of underestimated where it was, how big that issue was going to be on this new farm. And there's a whole, because there's a whole plot that is, uh, you know, 50 by, uh, nearly a hundred feet that just does not drain. That is just muck. And I didn't catch it when I was doing my initial walkthroughs and I didn't catch it over the winter time. I didn't catch it until about February. I noticed that it just seemed abnormally wet. And then it stayed that way in March. And then in April, I realized like I had to divert some of the water. So we started digging some ditches and it, a lot of things were dying. Nothing was growing. And I was really starting to freak out about that plot. And the rest of the gardens were fine, but they were, you know, that was the plot I'd planted first. So that was all of our early crops. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered uh, was that there was drainage tile, old drainage tile. I mean, who knows how old, but it was draining right into that plot. And I also discovered that all of our neighbors had, you know, say this too, that it's just unbelievably wet where we are. It's just wet. It there it's wet on the hillsides and we're on a bit of a slope um, and it's wet down in the valleys. It's wet everywhere. It's just a very wet area and something I just had underappreciated. I, you know, I was busy and kind of was like, I can build soil anywhere. I, it doesn't matter I, if it's not perfect. I'll, I'll figure it out. And I still think this is the right farm for us, but it's, this has provided a really interesting challenge for me um, to, to have to figure out not just, even now that we've diverted the drainage tile, it's still extremely wet and we're still having to figure out how to manage that. And a lot of the soil organic matter in that specific plot has been drained down to it's basically clay now. And, you know, we have good soil. The NRCS map showed us that we had good soil and we felt good about, you know, some, a nice silty loam. Uh, but then what we've discovered is that plot is it's just straight clay. And so we're managing it and I'm kind of, you know, I, I, on the one hand, it's it's as somebody who's trying to run a, a profitable business, especially in its first year, running into an issue like that is is was both expected, but also very uh, very you know hard. But there's a part of me that's excited to to take on the new challenge in the same way that I'm excited to try new systems, so that I have some insight on them for later on when people ask me about them or when somebody we get a lot of emails, people asking questions. We have a Patreon page where a lot of people ask questions. And I want to be able to answer those questions with, with not just with what I've heard, but what I know, what I've seen with my own eyes. And so this is one of those situations. Um, to answer your question about benchmarks, I don't really go by soil organic matter as much because the soil organic matter is really hard to measure in a situation where you're putting down six inches of compost on the surface and it, you know, 
uh, for several years and it ends up being mostly compost down to, you know, 12 inches or something. So I don't really do it so much by that. I do it by crop performance. Uh, I also, um, you know, by my ability to plunge a uh, something like rebar into the soil. I like to see the compaction going away. I like to know that it's that I, you know, we went back right before we sold our last farm and just went into the middle of the field and I put a piece of rebar into, you know, just crop residue from last year and it sunk down to, you know, six inches and it was like a four foot piece of rebar. And I felt really good about that. That seemed to me like something that what we were working in the right direction. And that's what I want to see is when I go out to a field, I don't want any resistance in the soil. I want that soil to just be in that sort of, sort of churn, that sort of, uh, you know, that, that sort of, uh, biological churn, that biological in the, in, you know, rich with that sort of biological disturbance. So the, to the point that you can just reach your hand into it. And yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of my, that's my main benchmark of success. And I, I think, uh, I think I could develop others. I think, uh, sometimes we still run into disease. I think you'd mentioned earlier when you're talking about how do we manage disease and stuff on a no-till farm, you know, we still get that. And especially on the new farm where the drainage is poor, the photosynthesis is not as high and the plants aren't doing as, as well, but I see, you know, and sometimes like we had those 14 inches of, or 14 days in a row, 13 days in a row of rain. So I see some blight on the tomatoes and it's frustrating, but it is, you know, as we get better and as we develop, as the soil develops, we see less, we just tend to see less and less of that. And we're, the crops become more reliable. You know, when I put something in the ground, I, I trust that it's going to grow. And that, that is such a huge relief. And I didn't always feel that way in a dry farming scenario. I didn't always feel that way when we were doing more row cropping and tillage. Yeah. So I think there are many ways to measure it, but those are, those are mine. John Kemp, um, who, you know, did a talk at an acres event last year and it, I don't remember the exact title, but it was something to the effect of soil testing has led us astray. And there's this sort of ongoing debate between sort of the mineral nutrition people and the biological people. And I'm curious how you think through those things. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big soil tester. I don't necessarily think it's the wrong approach. I think it's the right approach for certain people and certain crops, especially if you're growing a single one or two crops in a season. Like if you're more of a large scale crop grower and you're growing, you know, a large thing of soybeans or something, then that stuff maybe is more important. It's, it's hard for me to uh, see the, the full value in that because we're switching crops so much and different crops have different nutritional values and, so for me, I'm more looking at nutrient deficiencies and uh, in the leaves and I'm looking for crop performance. And when it's not there, I'm looking through, you know, uh, various websites, trying to figure out what the deficiency is, what the issue is and how I can address it. And I'm generally addressing crop deficiencies through foliar sprays uh, where possible. And I like that. I think that I, I see a better, I see a faster uh, response from the plants. It's um you know, when it's successful, when I do it right. And I like, uh, I feel more in tune with what's going on in my, in my plants and my soil by just watching the plants and being more observant. I take daily walks, uh, both in the morning and in the afternoon, just looking at the crops, um, and trying to tinker and fix it and figure out what works and what doesn't. And I think in terms of, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with the idea of, soil testing, but I am more in John's corner on using the plant and kind of, he's really big on sap analyses. Um, that doesn't always make sense on our scale because, you know, a lot of our crops are only in the ground for 50 days. 
but I like that. I think I wish there were more tools where a farmer could go out, get an immediate sap analysis and know what the plant is not able to draw into its leaves or what it's missing. I'm not big on bricks either. I kind of, I think John is also the same way and just, I, I, I don't think it gives us enough information. I do think it's interesting. I do think it's fun to see your BRICS levels going up or when something's not doing well to see, to correlate that with the BRICS level at the moment. But um, I think it's a little bit complicated. Uh, and I, I think that I'm much more interested in doing as needed applications. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's so much potential for development in that area of, uh, you know, farmers being able to monitor their own nutrition and uh, somebody that does that really well is Man's Organics. Andrew Mann at Man's Organics does that, you know, really intensive crop, you know, monitoring with a lot of sap analyses and those sorts of things. And I think that's cool. I think that's, I mean, he's doing, you know, really great production. Um, but I, you know, I think uh, soil tests just don't give me enough information and they by giving me way too much. Like, and it's, I also feel sometimes as though, and I've kind of seen this in my own tests that they don't like two tests don't really match up. Like they don't seem like they have anything related to each other if they're done relatively close to, to one another. Does that make sense? So like a, yeah. yeah, like the, the nutrient levels are different and nothing really changed. And I don't, in that to me, is very confusing and that's hard for me to parse out. Um, but I'm not opposed to it. I think if agronomist was agronomist was standing on my farm, they could be like, you know what, this is the nutrient you're missing here. This, you know, this is what we could be doing in this place. Uh, but I don't always have an option for that, especially like our crop turnover. I'm like, great. Okay. Well, the kale's coming out. So now, now what? Um, right. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm not opposed to it. I, I'm open to it, but I think for me, it's not, it doesn't make the most sense in, in our sort of crop production. I wanted to switch gears for a moment and talk about economics. I was hoping you could put no-till or your your brand of no-till into a commercial context. Does no-till regenerative farming pay? Um, I guess another way of asking that question is, you know, what's your business model? What works for you? Let me think about which way to approach that because our business model is primarily market market farming. So we're doing yeah. primarily farmers markets. Uh, we've done CSAs for years and our, we have not pushed the limit of what our property could produce. We just, you know, with the other things we have going on, we don't necessarily have to, but this over the next fiscal year, we, you know, from now until next June, uh, we hope to be at about 75,000 a year on three quarters of an acre. And, um, I'm, I'm thinking we'll be a little bit shy on that this year, but by next, by the next round, I think we'll be there. And I think that's what a lot of the people that are, you know, doing this, have been, you know, have good, their farms fully set up and are going, are able to achieve that, you know, sort of $100,000 a year on an acre of land gross uh, income. And I think that primarily they're satisfied with that. And there are people that are pushing it well beyond that. I mean, I know um, some that come to mind are people like Ray Tyler. I know that he's he's doing really great numbers down there in, in Southern Tennessee. And uh, Elliot Seldner over there in, at Fairshare Farm and his wife, they're doing great things over in North Carolina. And then, yeah, people like Connor Crickmore and Jane Forti. I mean, this, those numbers are, I think they're only going to continue to grow up as people get better and better and start to become more horticulturally minded, just better at the, at, at, at developing spacing and the technique. But the thing that no-till really brings to the picture is it reduces the amount of work it takes to achieve those numbers. And 
you know, maybe there's a bit of more of an upfront cost in things like compost, for instance, mulches, um, and, and some of the labor involved in that, but overall the labor reduction is just enormous. So economically speaking, I think that there's for us, I, you know, that's not that scalable, right? You can't do, if you can do a hundred thousand dollars an acre, you're not going to do a million on 10 necessarily, right? JM Fortier is one that's been pushing that, you know, trying to push that, see how far he can take that. I think he's at seven acres right now and really trying to see how far he can scale it. But that's something that, you, you know, if you're doing, let's say you're netting 50,000, 45, 50, 60,000, and you're, you know, that's pretty good in comparison to any form of agriculture. I think it's probably somewhat on the high end for certain people. And, you know, and it could be a lot more. And you're also not leaving your house. You're not having to drive very far to your farm. Oftentimes, you know, we walk out right out the back door and we're farming. And then, you know, the kids are out there playing with us and it's safe. There's no tractors. There's no dangers that we have to worry about with them or with ourselves. You know, I, the worst I get is a nick from the harvest knife. And that's, you know, that's kind of the, the, some of the benefits of of this style of farming is it's, you know, it's low danger. It's very easy. It's very close by, um, you know, easy in comparison to, to uh, a lot of different, more technical larger scale tractor farming. There's also, it's also more complicated. It can be, we make our farm way more complicated than it needs to be because that's just my, my personality. Uh-huh. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, it depends on also how you, de- how you de- define, you know, your, your income and what you want from your farm and what you want from your life. I think if you're not enjoying the type of farming you're doing, you have to do it differently. You're going to be doing it for the, you know, years and years and years. So if you're not enjoying it, then you should, you, then you definitely have to be doing it differently. Even if you're making way more money doing it the way that you don't enjoy, uh, you know, we don't value enough our time. We don't value enough our, uh, the time that we get with our family and our friends. You know, those are, that's always what matters at the end of life is your, is your relationships. And so, you know, that, that to me is factored into the, to the amount, to what we earn is, is how much time I'm able to spend with my friends and family. There's a lot of anxiety about the next generation of farmers. You know, I think that's one of the big questions I, I hear a lot is how do we get young people into farming? And it, the conversation usually boils down to matters of land access. And I think we have this fixation on land ownership, but that's not the only route. And you describe sort of other options in the book. And you also talk about things like cooperative farming, how do those things tie together, sort of the next generation of farmers and land access in your mind? I think that land access is, when I started out, it was a huge issue and I don't see it getting any better. And that kind of is a little bit heartbreaking because it's been a topic of conversation for a long time, but we saw a huge land grab through COVID. And I don't necessarily see that trickling down to the people who really want to work the land ecologically and, you know, regeneratively very quickly. And that is going to require uh, a lot of creativity on the part of the of people interested in getting into farming. And so some examples of that, you mentioned cooperative farming. We just released a co- uh, collaborative farming podcast, No-Till Growers. We're doing a mini series. Jackson Roulette is hosting it. And that is all about different kinds of farm collaborations, because I think that has a really big place in the future of agriculture, multiple families, uh, multiple partners working together to build a business. I think farming is, you know, uh, kind of been romanticized as this thing that is a small family farm. It's just one family or it's one person. They're kind of doing their thing. 
that is a ludicrous business model. (laughs) I just think the, you know, where farming is such an incredibly complex business where we are the manufacturers, we're the distributors, we're the marketers, we're the salespeople, and you can't expect one person to be good at all of those things. And you can hire that out, certainly. Um, And certain people are really good at employee management and figuring out how to make that profitable. But when you have people with vested interest, with a sense of propriety, working alongside you, that is a different story. So that, I mean, it's even something that Hannah and I've been, my wife and I have been batting about, like, how can we incorporate that into our current business? And also how can we use what we have, what we've built, the, you know, the sort of the opportunities that we've had to, you know, share that with somebody who has fewer opportunities that is interested in farming that, you know, so we are, you know, that's, that's, that's going to be some place in the future of agriculture. And we need to develop what that looks like a little bit more. I think Dan Brisebois and his team up at Ferrum Ternasol uh, have done a really wonderful job of, of kind of sharing how they've put their thing together. And, you know, the, I think that there's so much room for development and different models of that and more farms and more farmers teaming up. Then, you know, the also leasing agreements, I think that there's after this flood of, you know, people buying land. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of land owners looking for people to work their property. And obviously those deals should be approached with caution and with a contract, but they are, they can be amazing. And it could be really, there could be a lot of benefit there to young growers getting onto property and possibly owning a chunk of that property one day. Um, and, and I think that we will see some of that land come fat, back up for sale. Uh, you know, a lot of real estate agents talk about people who are interested in living in the country, buying land and staying on it for three to five years and realizing it's just too much, too much to take care of. So maybe some of that will come back up for sale. But I do think we're seeing, you know, uh, a, a, we're going to see less and less land available. It's going to be more and more expensive. So we have to be creative. And um you know, I think that I want to discourage young or beginning farmers from worrying too much about spending five or 10 years on leased land. I've moved several times. I've built really great soil and then left it. And it's sad and it's hard. It's physically hard to move a farm, but it's possible. And as long as you're happy and you're with people that you love and you're enjoying yourself and you're you see a new opportunity and you left behind really great soil, you improved where you were great. And now maybe you have some capital to work with, to build exactly what you want, where you want it, you know, don't just be creative and think of it as an opportunity. And, you know, we're, it may be harder to find land, but you know, uh, if you're in, you know, success for favors, the prepared mind, right. That if you, you're in a, if you spend some time working and getting ready and saving some money and getting your chops from, learning how to, to grow food. And then when it, when that opportunity arises for you to buy land, if, if you so want, then, uh, you can jump on it. So, I mean, I think instead of being worried about leasing land, go ahead and lease the land. And then when the opportunity is there, you're, you're ready for it. Where can people find out more about what you're doing? Yeah. So, uh, notillgrowers.com is the site that I run with Jackson Roulette who helped me start it. Uh, also the no-till market garden podcast. We are in between season three and season four. It is an interview style podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have done the no-till flowers podcast that is hosted by Jenny love of love and fresh flowers. And also, uh, the winter growers podcast, 
hosted by Clara Coleman every other week on YouTube. We do the uh, Growers Live, which is just a podcast style, conversational style live interview hosted by Josh Satin. And so the idea being that there are a lot of growers kind of sourcing the information and being the ones that are doing the interviews. And um, so most of, but, and then of course the Living Soil Handbook as is also a great option. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. There you have it. Go buy the Living Soil Handbook at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Use the coupon code JUNEPOD, that's J-U-N-E-P-O-D, for 10% off on all titles. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time, brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.